1: and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gambling. Please visit TheRinger.com RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen at the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and up in President Select States. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com RG.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of The Ringer Gambling Show. We are joined, as always, by Ben Solak. This is the podcast of all podcasts. We break down all the film, all the data, all the analytics, and try to take what we learned from last week into meaningful takeaways that we can utilize this week for gambling on the NFL. It's my favorite show of the week. Ben, welcome. How are you doing today?
0: Thank- Warren, the intro to the pod is always such a great ego boost. I love it. I'm going to have to do it at some point so I can gas you up. But I just sit here, I get gassed up for the whole intro. Feels great.
3: Yeah, it does. I mean, it's so I- I'm so excited. I love working on these outlines to try to pick your brain, ask you questions, because there's so much good information inside that head of yours that we need to pull out to utilize from a betting perspective here. And I want to start with the biggest game that we saw last week. And that was the Chargers Browns game and roll that forward to the Chargers Ravens game. So the Chargers back to back weeks are taking on opponents from the AFC North, both of which are good teams at running the football. Now they do it different ways because the Baltimore Ravens have had so many injuries at the running back position, whereas the Browns just hand the ball off to Nick Chubb or Kareem Hunt all the time. And those guys were gashing this defense. And it was a key point that you made last week. And I asked you specifically, would the Chargers have any better success in stopping the run game of these Cleveland Browns? And you made the point that they lack one of three key elements on the defensive side of the football that are preventing them. And that was the tackle up front to stop these runs. And sure enough, Nick Chubb was just breaking off 10 plus yards left and right and gashing these guys. And they built a 27 to 13 lead over the Chargers. Obviously they ended up losing that game. So First, let's start from that perspective here. And I know I'm going off script of from the outline, but what is your takeaway from the Chargers defense in that game? And what do you think that the Baltimore Ravens run game will be able to do to have success, even though they don't have quite the same caliber of running backs, but they do have Lamar Jackson?
0: Yeah, uh, a little bit of a they are who we thought they were in terms of right how the Chargers performed. Giving up 42 points to the Cleveland Browns is not, really the performance that you'd like from what defense that you think might be a top defense, right? This is a Brandon Staley defense. This is going to, you know, build the team out after week five. Now the Chargers are the second to last team in the league in rush EPA allowed only the chiefs are worse. And now the chiefs are like trying to stop the run. They just can't because their personnel is really bad. Uh, the, the Chargers obviously, as we've talked about structurally, they're willing to give up that running game. The thing is, right. When you, catch some of these other AFC contenders like the Browns, and now next week, like the Ravens, you're going to be playing into their hands. You're going to be playing into the way they want to run the football. I think the Browns will, will have had more success rushing against the chargers than the the Ravens were. Firstly, uh, we can already see this season teams are are having more success in general against the Ravens running game. Uh, the, the Ravens had obviously the injury to Ronnie Stanley. Ben Cleveland went down uh, in the game against the Colts. Now he's on IR. So they've got multiple injuries they're dealing with up front. And then obviously the running back injuries as well. So this becomes a game of force the give as much as you can. Uh, don't let the, the ball, make them give it to the running back, make them go uh, into the teeth of their offensive line, make them go vertical forward, and then try to beat that offensive line in the trenches because this offensive line is not as as good as it's been in years past. And is certainly not as good as the Cleveland Browns offensive line. So I think that the Ravens are still going to run the ball on the the chargers. I think every team's going to run the ball on the chargers, but unlike years past, I don't think this Ravens running game is as dominant is as terrifying on a week to week basis. We can talk about what Lamar's doing in the passing game because Holy smokes, but what, Lamar, what they do in the running game now is not as multifarious. It's not as nasty. Uh, and so you don't have to worry about it as much. Chargers defense, still going to give up rushing yards, still going to get gashed, probably still going to give up a lot of points on the ground. But I don't think it's as as worrisome as the Browns matchup was.
3: Yeah, and, and, and what you're saying rings true to me and from the data as well. This offseason, I was even looking at the way the defenses were trying to slow down the run game. And typically, you know, this is, and I was doing the research, this Ravens team faces the third highest rate of seven plus man boxes in the NFL. No surprise there. Um, only the Browns and the Vikings faced a higher rate, but those two teams hand the ball off to their running backs and the Ravens were still, even in a 2019, having success handing the ball off or having Lamar keep it because just because you're facing a heavier box does not mean that Lamar doesn't give you the numbers advantage because he's the one running the football. But in 2020, teams started to overplay the Lamar running aspect of that. And if you look at all of the metrics, whether it's EPA, yards per carry, or success rate, when you focus on Lamar's runs from non-11 personnel groupings or scramble attempts from Lamar, much lower success, much lower production last year than in 2019. Teams started to say, we're going to load the box. It doesn't work unless we specifically overplay Lamar. We're going to try to take away Lamar's feet, beat us with your running backs or beat us with your arm. So when we talk about um, your concerns in this game, that they don't have the run game, the handoff game to beat them by handing the ball off. Um, and you're going to force the the Baltimore Ravens then to beat you with Lamar's arm. Here is an interesting dilemma because the Baltimore Ravens have gone up against, three bottom five pass defenses so far this year. They've gone up against the Detroit Lions, the Kansas City Chiefs, and then, of course, the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, the LA Chargers pass defense, like their run defense is getting gashed, but their pass defense is definitely above average here. And the Indianapolis Colts was a mash unit last week by the time that game finished. How do you see Baltimore's passing attack stacking up against the L.A. Chargers' past defense.
0: So, obviously, we'd like to have Rashad Bateman back. He's an important player to them. You saw them basic, not bench Sammy Watkins, um, but Devin Duvernay substantially outsnapped Sammy Watkins against the the Colts. Uh, uh, James Prochet as well. Uh, they need that possession receiver. They were hoping that Watkins was going to be that guy for them. Third and six, move the stick, sort of a player. Uh, he's struggled this season. Rashad Bateman, their rookie out of Minnesota, is the important player to come back. If we get him, then this becomes a, a, a bit more dangerous of a passing offense. It's interesting that the, the drop-off in efficacy you're talking about is runs that are non-11 personnel. Because a couple of years ago, right? like You think about like the Hayden Hurst, Nick Boyle era, Lamar Jackson, Ravens, right? They were very heavy 12 personnel, very heavy 13 personnel, a lot of Patrick Ricard, right? And they were going to condense you. They were going to bring tight ends of fullbacks in, in, into, the, into the, the core of the formation and then run the football from those condensed sets and get their play-action game off those condensed sets. They are no longer that. They are a, a spread-run team now. This is a, a we're going to use our quarterback run, we're going to use our running game, but we're going to do it from much lighter cores, much, much uh, more spread-out formations than we have in years past. Uh, that is an advantage against some defenses. It's not going to be an advantage against the Chargers defense because the Chargers defense is very happy to play with multiple defensive backs on the field, right? That's how they want to play anyway. They're very happy to play from spread alignments, put multiple defensive tackles in between the tackles, spill runs, make runs go to the outside, and then rally up and tackle with their safeties. It's not going to be an advantage for you. So you have to be able to throw the football. And while Rashad Bateman coming in is a benefit, I don't think they have a clear wide receiver one winner. I know that Marquise Brown's putting up some gaudy stats. To me, he's an inconsistent player. I don't think he wins snap in, snap out against a guy like Asante Samuel Jr. Uh, And then Bateman is a rookie in his first start. You can't really put too much faith on him. So unless you're getting a humongous Mark Andrews game, then I'm not sure who you're relying on here in the passing attack. And even if Mark Andrews starts popping off, you can go and put Derwin James on him and and erase that problem. So to me, it's not a good matchup for the Ravens offense altogether. Was very impressed with what they did late against the Colts and, and, and coming back in that game. But we can't ignore the first half. This is an offense that kind of has some fits and some starts uh, against the Chargers. I don't think you can get away with that. To me, this is, I know the Chargers opened at like plus three and a half. I took that. I took the money line when it opened. I think it closes less than a field goal. Uh, to me, this is a game where the Chargers had the advantage on that side of the ball.
3: Yeah, and if we remember back to the playoff game a couple of years ago, this was the the Ravens were rolling once they inserted Lamar Jackson and obviously different defense coordinator, but the Chargers came in here into Baltimore and played with a ton of DBs, shut down the Ravens' run game, got them in a big deficit. Lamar turned the ball over a couple times, and then they weren't able to pass their way back into the game in Lamar's first season, getting some snaps as starter. And the Chargers were able to win that game. So this is a bit of a revenge from that angle, but I don't disagree that it's going to be a much bigger challenge this week for the Ravens offense. Probably agree with you as well. They're not going to have as much success on the ground as the Browns did uh, and less success in the air as they did last week's against the Colts. So it's going to put them in a bit of a dilemma. On the other side of the ball, Ben, we've got a team in the LA Chargers with arguably the best quarterback in the NFL or one that's playing at that best level right now. Um, but they're kind of still a little bit holding him back. And I know if you look big picture, and we'll talk about this momentarily, look at all of his air yards combined last week, it looked okay. But we're still seeing a little bit of the tampering down of what he's going to do on first downs at the beginning of games. Um, and then they fell into a deficit. But we look at Carson Wentz and I think went under discussed last week. Uh, I know you have a lot of, uh, probably pent up feelings and some that spill out about Carson Wentz because he played for your Eagles team for several years. Uh, and we saw a lot of the mistakes that he makes there and still his pocket awareness, his decision making at times is just so frustrating. Mm-hmm. But obviously Lamar Jackson's performance overtook what Carson did and that was throw for over 400 yards on the road and he had a very good game his best game of the season for the Colts. Um, they were able to just dominate with Jonathan Taylor through the air a lot Frank Reich designed a great game plan to get the ball out of Carson's hands quickly don't make him hold the ball in the pocket too much. Identify where he wants to go with the ball. A lot of yards after the catch. Some deep passes as well. Austin Eckler had a ton of success here. If the Indianapolis Colts and Carson Wentz are capable of doing this to the Baltimore Ravens defense, what do you see from Justin Herbert in this game?
0: Yeah, and I I think that the Ravens defense, because they're very well coached, because they like to create chaos, and because Marlon Humphrey is really, 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 really good, they get away with a lot of stuff. Uh, You know. that Colts game is a good example of where it's like, why are the Colts moving the football this easily? I thought it was a good defense. And you're like, yeah, it is. But also, they're playing a couple young guys up front. You're going to get mistakes. They're linebacking core. They really needed the steps forward from second-year player Patrick Queen and second-year player Malik Harrison. They got neither. Uh, yes, Marlon Humphrey is really, really good. The Ravens right now are fourth in DVOA, allowed to number one receivers. They're 23rd to number two receivers and 20th to other receivers 21st to tight ends and 29th to running backs in terms of targeting. So, yeah, Marlon Humphrey can take away the top guy. Nobody else uh, really, for as much man coverage as they play, has an advantage uh, on passing downs, right? And Anthony Averitt has stepped in admirably for injury. Jimmy Smith is back. Like, I think that they can get better, and I think that Averitt's got some nice traits as a player. But simply, you can avoid Marlon Humphrey In the passing game because they're not generating enough pressure to really force you to to throw the ball quickly and you can separate from those other uh defensive backs that they have in coverage so when you look at a team like the chargers who you and i both don't love how much they're targeting their running backs but herbert's willing to get that ball quickly to austin eckler in space and eckler's a really good player with the ball in his hands yeah like that's going to be a good look for them because The Ravens are going to try to match that with Patrick Queen. They're going to try to match that with Chuck Clark. And Eckler can make both those guys miss in space. Yes, I think we wish they were pushing the ball downfield more. But hey, if it's an underneath target to Keenan Allen on a quick breaking route, Allen's going to eat Anthony Averett's lunch. You know what I mean? Like That's something you expect to be there the whole game. Uh, So the Ravens' secret sauce has always been being able to create chaos with the Blitz. Herbert's third and fourth down numbers are absurd, but the other thing that's absurd is going even back to his rookie season. He's been really quite good when pressured. Not as good when blitz, but really quite good when pressured. We've seen that this year. So even if they're able to get blitzes off, and even if they're able to get him into a couple of mistakes, he's a really, really, really good responder to pressure. Much better than we see typically for a young quarterback. So to me, uh, I, again, like the Ravens are four and one, and it's because Harbaugh's such a good coach. Like the the win against the Lions, the win against the Chiefs, like they snuck out some of that stuff and then it's because lamar is such a good quarterback you look at the win against the chiefs or the win against the colts and you're like wow lamar is, is the goat they're getting carried by their key guys and i think that that's impressive and i think that they're a playoff team and i think they'll get healthier throughout the year and it'll be better but right now they're going against a chargers team that's just more solid across the board better depth better talent more healthy only concern is the Chargers offensive line. Ode Abushi is out. Brian Bulaga is out. The right side of the line might get beat up a little bit. But again, I think the Chargers have enough to overcome it.
3: The only other concern for me besides that is the kicking game. And that is one where Justin Tucker has a massive edge over the Chargers kicking game. And the only reason could I... am not
0: even name the Chargers place kicker right now if you ask me No.
3: Do. And, and, and the, uh, the only reason that that is even something I want to mention here is because of my frustration with the Chargers team. And I want to rattle off a couple of statistics. Slight, small rant. I'll pack this up as tightly as possible, but we saw once again the Chargers in a one-score game. They've played four one-score games and they've only played five games so far this year. Yes, they're four and one, but they constantly force themselves into these tight games, even though they have a good defense and even though they have a great quarterback playing at an extremely high level. And we talked about the fact that we want them to get a little bit more aggressive early. Last week on first downs in the first three quarters of the game, they averaged 2.3 air yards on their pass attempts. This was down from 8.6 the prior week. 2.3 air yards with Justin Herbert is just insane to me. Um, they had five possessions in the first half two punts, a fumble, and two touchdowns. Their third downs averaged 8.7 yards to go, which was way worse than average. The reason is because you're averaging only 2.3 air yards on your first down passes in this spot. And as a result of this inefficiency, which you're basically bringing upon yourself because of your play calling, they're in a 27-13 to hole with less than a quarter and a half to play. Justin Herbert is forced to go four straight drives scoring touchdowns. And even when he does that in the fourth quarter, four touchdowns in the fourth quarter, they have a lead in the second half for a grand total of 133 seconds. And the thing to me is that's just mind boggling here is that on first down so far this season, they're averaging minus 0.04 EPA per attempt, which is fifth worst in the NFL. Only the Dolphins, Jets, Bears, and Texans are worse. That's Three rookie quarterbacks plus whatever it is that the Dolphins trot out there on a weekly basis. Meanwhile, third down passing, we know Justin Herbert is insane, plus 0.35 EPA per attempt, which is the third best in the NFL. And there's no way that an offense that can do that on third down can't bring some of that efficiency forward to first down and be a little bit more productive to try to avoid some of these third downs. They convert a new set of down only 50% of the time on early downs, which is below average. No team converts a higher percentage of their first downs on either third or fourth down. So it's, it's just a little frustrating. It's the problem for, for this, Ben, is we talk, we, you brought it up like weeks ago. We've been talking about it for weeks. Don't want to belabor the point, but the issue becomes they are winning games this way. And so what is where? where is the pressure coming for them to make a change? You might think that, well, because they were down by 14 points after the midway point of the third quarter and had to go rocket ship to get back in the game and barely won, that might be the impetus. But at the end of the day, maybe they think, well, we won the game. Let's just keep playing this way. I just don't know what it's going to take to make it click, especially when they've got such a forward-thinking head coach who definitely seems like he understands nuances of the game and understands a lot of variables with the game that, that we shouldn't try to be more efficient on first down to bypass third downs more often. We shouldn't be trying to get a lead at halftime. Like let's not focus on winning the game late. Let's focus on winning the game early. Right. I I I don't know. I'm a little lost for words with,
1: with this.
0: Right. I think, I think, right. There's, there's, Two things that come to mind like from the jump, which is one, and this is a little bit what we talked about in, in, the, in the front like a couple weeks ago. Structurally, their, their passing game is very much so if we have the running back take it, right? I, 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 I'm not sure if structurally is the right word because uh, some of it's also Herbert. Some of it's also the way he wants to play, right? Like there are times where he could just choose to stay in the pocket longer. That back is, uh, is open in the flat and he could just wait and see if something un- uh, uncovers downfield and he doesn't, right? That's something like Allen would do. And Herbert doesn't do it. Herbert just gets it to the running back. And I think that's a good decision in the context of that play. In the context of game planning Monday to Saturday, maybe we should do less. All right, we're putting five out in the concept, and it's quick game stuff, and he's going to give it to the fly if he doesn't have it. And maybe we should do more. Let's call a shot on first down, because we have a quarterback that can get away with it. The second thing that I think, and I've, I've, been, I've been noodling over this. I'll be interested to see what, what you think about this, but so much of, of Herbert's third down success is just stupid. It's like, it's like Jesse from Breaking Bad. He can't keep getting away with it. Like, this is just impossible. <laughs> it pisses me off. But also, I think there's something to be said for the psychology of a quarterback, for his decision-making. When he knows his head coach is going to let him go for it on fourth down, that he's able to just uncork it on third down. Like, I, I, I would wonder if some of Herbert's third down a dot. Is inflated by the idea that he's like, all right, if I don't get this, A, we're probably going for it on fourth down. And B, even if I like take a sack because I held onto the ball for too long and we don't get to go for it on fourth down, we're just gonna go for it on the next one. Like, I, 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 he always has like a, a, an extra life. He always has like a, like a one up Mario mushroom that just kind of lets him be risky. And I think that that'll regress and that'll get worse. But like the aggressiveness on third down is probably a little bit parceled into this idea of being like, I'm not going to get yelled at. Like I'm not. I'm, I'm going to like have ruined our drive. Like we're just going to go for it. Like you say we're chilling. Like we're fine. So I, I, I do think that there's. I agree with you. I think they're going to figure it out as they go. I trust Stale, I think he's a smart head coach. There are things that I think are are actually good that even though on like the larger scale, they look like kind of bad, like this disparity in ADOT and this, this heavy, you know, uh, uh, caution on first downs that like in the context of plays are still Herbert making good decisions. And that's good news. It's just a matter of the coaching staff kind of putting their offense in general in better spots.
3: I a hundred percent agree with the, ni- with the notion that, um, we are playing a lot differently on third downs psychologically than other teams are and we can be willing to I mean their game this past week you mentioned the air yardage 15.2 air yards they averaged on third or fourth down and, and particularly on third down and that's insane a lot of teams and it's not a good strategy in general certain defenses play the sticks a little bit differently on third downs across the league but if you look at league averages on third down, you want to be getting the ball beyond the sticks because throwing the ball short of the sticks on third down generally has less success, less con- chance of converting because not only do you have to complete that pass, but then you have to gain the extra yards after the catch. Whereas if you throw it beyond the sticks, you just have to catch that football and you could get tackled right away. It's okay because you've got the first down. But these guys are throwing the ball like beha- Beyond what all defenses are anticipating, a passing attempt would come on third and seven. Right on third and seven, you're thinking, okay, this pass attempt might become five to ten yards down the field. Right, and, and the and the Chargers are going like 15 yards down the field, and they know that, like you said, they've got that one up, they've got that extra life where they can just go for it again if it doesn't work out. And you know, modern day football, especially with a quarterback like this, if you give any team two shots to gain Six yards and you're in trouble, especially when they're throwing the ball at least six yards on both of those attempts. It's very unlikely that you're going to be able to just shut these guys down. Two straight plays. Um, you know, when they, when they have full access to rotating in players or calling whatever types of plays that they want to. So it is a massive psychological advantage for the quarterback. Um, and for the offense in general, just to say like, okay, most teams, it's, this is, this is the, money down you're either kicking the ball after this down with, with a punter or a field goal um, or you're converting it. And for them, it's like, we got two shots at this thing. We're not, we're not kicking the ball. We're just going for it. So I think it's incredible. Um,
0: yeah. We've been too long in this game. Yeah. I got to ask real quick. Yep. When the Browns forced Austin Eckler to score the touchdown to get the ball back, were you like, Did you get up out of your seat? Were you cheering? Were you waving a foam finger? Yeah, <laughs> let's go, baby. The spreadsheets.
3: Yeah, no, it, it, was, it was absolutely absurd. That game, I could not believe the way that that game unfolded. And I, unfortunately, liked the under in that game. Um, and oh, that game was... <laughs> 40 points midway through like over midway through the third quarter, the way that some of the events unfolded in the second quarter and the way that these teams just weren't settling for field goals. I was like, okay, we're already fucked in this game. It's it's, it doesn't matter uh, at the end of the day, but like, the fourth quarter and how many... I mean, they tr- they scored four touchdowns for the Chargers in the fourth quarter alone. It was absolutely insane. And then you just have to sit back and say, like, I guess I'd rather lose this way than sweat it out to the last second and lose. But yep. uh, that, that game was absolutely insane.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes...
3: Insane from a totally different way, Ben, was the New England Patriots almost losing to a rookie quarterback, Davis Mills. And that rookie quarterback and his head coach making that ridiculous mistake of trying the fake punt and kicking it into the back of the offensive lineman's head and giving the Patriots the opportunity to get back into that game very quickly. Um, My question for you is there there's a big game brewing here. We've got the New England Patriots at two and three. Playing back at home, the last time that we saw them back in New England, they almost beat Tom Brady's Bucks and they're going up against Dallas Cowboys who look absolutely unstoppable. Now that game was closer than the final score indicated into the third quarter, despite the Giants being down everybody last week. Uh, however, you know, there were some self-inflicted wounds on behalf of the Cowboys offense that prevented them from scoring as much early as they ended up scoring, um, late, but, the interesting element here, there's two things that I want to talk about. Number one, the Patriots O-line. The Patriots O-line last week versus the Texans. You're down four starters. Um, How did they end up looking against this Houston Texans team uh that actually did not blitz a single time on third down? Not just that game, but ever. They're the only team in the NFL to never have sent a blitz on third down, which is mind-boggling to me. This is a Houston Texans team that blitzes at the lowest rate of any team in the NFL. They also get the lowest pressure of any team in the NFL. And, you know, that obviously is going to make any offensive line look a little bit better. So now the Patriots are going up against a pass rush and a front of the Dallas Cowboys that is probably likely to get a little bit more pressure on Mac and cause more problems for a beaten up offensive line. So, Give me your thoughts on the offensive line situation for the New England Patriots.
0: Right, so the, the line they had to put out was missing uh, four of five starters. Justin Heron, uh, Ted Karras, Yadni Kajust, and James Ferentz in for, oh boy, Isaiah Wynn, Michael Wenu, Shaq Mason, Trent Brown. David Andrews, the center, <laughs> still there. Which, if you had to pick one of the five to still be there, the center is the one that you pick. So that's not nice. It's like the Eagles. It's like the Eagles,
3: O-line. Yeah. They seem to always have Kelsey, and then they just lose everybody else.
0: Yeah, and then uh, they also lose, during the game, Damian Harris, who goes out with a rib injury. And and they're actually able to run the ball decently well. Uh, the Texans' defensive front is just is not good. Uh, so, in general, uh, you don't trust this group. Like, Heron's got some experience. Obviously, uh, Ted Harris has played a lot of ball. But in general, you don't trust this group. You don't love this group. Cowboys are playing really well up front right now. Probably a little better than their, their actual talent would indicate. But still, they're they're hot right now. And I think if you have to walk this group out against the Cowboys, you're worried about that. I know Michael and Wenu and Isaiah Wynn are on the COVID-19 list. I do not know what their timelining is right now. So there's a chance they're available. But Trent Brown's on IR. Shaq Mason's dealing with an abdomen. I think you're, you're expecting to miss both of those players. The nice thing the Patriots did to help and this helped Mac Jones as well, is they, they started running some of that play pass stuff we've talked about in weeks past. We're not just going to run play action here with, with the offensive line sitting on zone blocks or double teams. We're going to pull a guard. We're, we're going to run play action. We're going to pull somebody and have him protect the edge. And what's what's nice about that is you're letting the other offensive lineman basically slide, right? Your left tackle doesn't have to protect the edge. Now he's going to slide. You're going to pull that right guard over and he's going to handle the edge for you. That can help out your guys. Uh, and it also... Is a very hard sell on play action. If you're a linebacker and you see the quarterback turn his back to you and you see a guard pull, you have to trigger. You can't play pass. Like that, you have to play run. So we love that, that hard pull, that play action. Mac Jones was able to get the ball further downfield, middle of the field, than he had been in previous games. All that's good. We should keep that even when the offensive line gets back, because that's how Mac succeeded at Alabama. And I think that's been something that's been missing from this, this uh uh excuse me I totally forgot the name of the team this New England offense uh And they're figuring stuff out still, right? Like we've seen Jacoby Myers now become a really important part of this passing game, especially with James White gone. Hunter Henry had his biggest game as a pass catcher. They've really stopped trying to make Johnny Smith a thing. They added a lot of new pieces, new quarterback. They're still figuring things out. I thought Houston was a nice step forward, even though they lost Harris, even though they lost the offensive line in terms of some of the schematic stuff they're doing.
3: Interesting. So that's the type of stuff that we don't get unless we look at the film and understand kind of how they played. So great insight. From that respect, on the other side of the football, we know Bill Belichick's defense historically owns absolutely like keeps these guys in a cage after they play a rookie quarterback. They just dominate rookie quarterbacks. And here comes this lower drafted player, Davis Mills, and throws up 300 yards and three touchdowns against Bill Belichick's defense and nearly pulls out the outright win as an underdog here. Um, the Patriots have played three bottom four offenses this year, the Jets, the Texans, and then the Dolphins. Um, What do you think they are going to be able to do against this Dallas Cowboys team? Because the Dallas Cowboys, obviously they fall a little bit more in line with like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offense in terms of strength, but the Patriots actually did surprisingly well against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offense. And maybe that's just the familiarity with Tom Brady, the rain that was falling, the nervousness that Tom Brady had for such a big game. You could tell that he was not as settled in at the beginning of that one. Um, how do you see this Patriots defense rebounding from the almost embarrassment of allowing so much production to a rookie to now having to face up against a good offensive line, great weapons, and Dak, who's playing incredibly well?
0: Yeah. Oh man, Dak's so good. I uh yeah. Herbert stole the Dak buzz in the four o'clock slate on Sunday. And Dak was playing the Cow- the Giants, I get it, whatever. But Dak's just so stinking good. Uh and and Herbert being really good is like good news for the Cowboys it's kinda like hiding. It's bearing the lead a little bit. But I'm really interested to see what happens to him in this game because. The Patriots right now, I think, are still leading the league in, in their uh, rate of drop eight coverage. And, and drop eight, rush three, drop eight is something that's really interesting because you see a ton of it in college and the league is like uh, very offended by it in the last couple of years, right? The league would never not have an edge rusher. Like you can't, that, 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 you, <laughs> you, you, you try to pitch that idea to a defensive coordinator, he would just shut the door on you. Like you're not even gonna get that, that plane off the ground. Well, we're seeing now you know, go back to that Bills game against the Chiefs. They weren't necessarily rushing three, but we're seeing teams against elite quarterbacks drop a lot of guys into coverage and not rush with as many players. And the Patriots, more than any other team with really good edges, Matt Judon and Josh Uche are playing really, really, really good ball, play a lot of rush three and drop eight. And it's because I think that we're seeing the pendulum swing that way in terms of how you respond to elite quarterbacks. Well, Prescott is one of the best quarterbacks in the league against the Blitz from a pre-snap recognition perspective, from a toughness perspective, from an accuracy perspective. He's amazing. The Patriots are going to sit and drop eight and they're going to try to put a roof on top of him. They're not going to let, you know, get Dalton Schultz down the field, get Amari Cooper isolated one-on-one. They're not going to let you do that. They're going to try to play with a lot of guys deep. They play more zone than they typically do under Belichick. And they're going to force you to be an underneath passer. They're going to force you to be methodical. Prescott can do that, but we haven't seen him run into this sort of defense yet this year. So I'm very fascinated to see what happens. Uh, The big game will belong to Tony Pollard. Uh, When you play rush three, drop eight, you're dropping into short zones. You're not going to cover that bat coming out of the flat. You're trying to force that throw. You're trying to force that swing to the back and then rally up and tackle him. Pollard's been one of the better receiving backs in the the league this year. Even Zeke looks better as a receiving back than he has in years past. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's running back target heavy, shallow depth of target, not going to be the prettiest game on Prescott's game log, but he's just going to be methodical, hit him underneath, Jalen Mills plays, pick on Mills. If Mills is still out, pick on Joe Juan Williams. Just avoid J.C. Jackson. You have enough pass catchers that you can do it. If they get Michael Gallup back, it's even trickier. So I think they'll be fine. But I do think the Patriots are going to be able to take the, the wind out of the Cowboys' sails here a little bit.
3: This is setting up to be a big, sharp versus square type game here. With obviously everybody loves the Dallas Cowboys and what they've been doing. They see the New England Patriots. If anybody bet on the New England Patriots last week and obviously almost lost outright, a lot of people teased them down and maybe didn't cover that on the teaser. Um, so there's a lot of public angst about betting on the Patriots at this point after obviously the Patriots cost a lot of people so, some money when they bet against the Patriots with Tom Brady. Um, so the Patriots have kind of been a team that's irked people for two straight weeks. Once they were betting against them, once they were betting on them, they lost both times. Now they're going up against the Cowboys and they see the Cowboys are laying just a short four and they're like, oh, this is easy money. Let's bet on the Dallas Cowboys here. Uh, but it feels like that the books are going to be looking to take the Patriots and and, and hope that the Patriots are going to cover this spread and make this be no more than a three-point game. How close do you see this one right now? The game is lined at four and the total sits at right around 51, but there are some 51 and a halves out there as well.
0: Yeah, I definitely don't touch it until I know the status of the, uh, the Patriots offensive line. If they stay without you know three plus starters i do think i like the cowboys and i probably like the under as well just because i think the dallas has enough talent on the defensive line to cause a problem there if the patriots get win and when off the COVID list and like even if they're able to get a Shaq mason game as well which i think is unlikely but if they just get those two i think it makes it a lot easier to pass protect i think you expect a better game and then yeah four points to me is an appropriate line 51 does feel a little bit high just because the Cowboys are very run-heavy on neutral scripts right now and the Patriots are the same, I think that they're going to shorten this game by keeping the clock running. So I I probably edge under there just a bit, but again, it's not something I feel super confident about, and I do want to know what the Patriots' offensive line is going to look like.
3: Yeah, and just for the record, um, the books opened this line at 48, 48 and a half, and then there was a couple of sharp betting groups that took two separate whacks at this game to push it up to the 51, and 51 is a key number for those of you looking to get involved in this total from a betting perspective, and that games land at 51 far more often than they do at 50 or 52, and thus going over 51 and a half, a horrible idea here, um, especially with a line that opened at 48. Uh, even if the game ends up landing 59, okay, it's just not a good practice for you to be betting on that side of a game that's already moved that many points. Um, but... Going under 51 and a half puts you more in line with what the books were thinking when they opened this total down at 48 and gives you the right side of a very key number. Moving to a game that features a divisional rivalry that I think is quite interesting because of what Justin Fields has done the last couple of weeks, even though he may not have been quite as impressive, but you're going to tell us momentarily how he actually looked in Las Vegas last week against the Raiders, his first road start of the year. But first, I want to talk about the defending MVP, Aaron Rodgers here. We've got the Green Bay Packers taking on the Chicago Bears. The game is in Chicago. Green Bay's favored by four and a half. This total sits at 45 points. In both 2019 starts, Ben, and in his final start in 2018 against the Bears, Aaron Rodgers struggled. Three games, he threw only two touchdowns with one interception. He took 11 total sacks. Threw for barely over 200 yards. I think it was like 203 yards in two of the four games, 203 in both of those games. Averaged 6.2 yards per attempt, 6.5 yards per attempt and 6.8 yards per attempt in those three games. Jump to last season. He looked completely different. Two games, eight touchdowns, no interceptions, only one sack taken between 72 and 79% completions, 7.3 yards per attempt, 10 yards per attempt. What, like, i know no, I'm challenging your mental ability to go back in time, not just to a couple of weeks ago, but last season versus 2019. What was so different that Aaron Rodgers had so much more success against the Bears last year uh as compared to his prior several games against them?
0: Right. So I I I think that like largely in in turn like agnostic of opponent. Rogers look like, in 2018 wasn't as good right and then like we saw the, seen this sudden yep. surge right under Matt LaFleur 2019 into 2020 the other thing is it's actually folds nicely into like a totally different piece I was working on where I'm doing a Brandon Staley thing but the Vic Fangio defense in Chicago right 2017 2018 you remember that game where the the Rams were 11 and 1 they're scoring 40 points a game and they walk into Chicago on Sunday Night Football and put up six right that in 2018 that that big Fangio Bears defense he was the DC there was just sitting on people I mean it was nuts 2019 is the first year of Chuck Pagano but if you look at it like statistically the uh, where the Bears were really good in 2018 and 2017 under Fangio stopping explosive pass right pressure with four whatever they kind of were still good up in those metrics in 2019 first year under Pagano as they were like transitioning and then as they started to lose some personnel, Akeem Hicks was out for a lot of 2020, whatever. Then it, it kind of uh, cratered and went back to being like a standard defense. Now in 2021, it's Sean Desai, a uh, big fan, Joe Disciple. And I, I did not think the Bears defense was going to be very good coming into the season. They have really settled in, besides a week one game against the Matt Stafford Rams, where like nobody really knew what the Matt Stafford Rams were going to look like yet. And they got just thrown all over the yard on them. Uh, they've been really, really solid. Uh, even the 26-point game against the the Browns, they only gave up 13 points through three quarters, and their offense didn't have first downs. So it's very hard to get <laughs> a lot of drives here. It's a t- 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 tough ask. Uh, this this Bears defense is legit, and yeah, they do the thing where they're, we're going to build a roof on top of you, and we're going to make you run the football. Bad news? Packers can run it pretty well. Two-headed backfield, A.J. Dillon, Aaron Jones looks really, really good this year. But it's true on the other side of the ball as well. Joe Barry, who's the D.C. with the the Packers, the Brandon Staley disciple, he's going to let you run the ball on him. The Browns are running the football really well. Uh, So suffice to say, I have the under in this game. We'll just open with that. Um, But I think that Rodgers is playing good football. I think that he's making good decisions. He looks solid this year. But this is the sort of defense that forces him to be methodical, be an underneath passer. Uh, And while the uh, Bears don't have a lot of great secondary depth, the so Packers don't have a great wide receiver depth room right now. Marquez Valdez-Scantling is out. It's going to be Jalen Johnson on Devontae Adams. That's a, a tough matchup, of course, for Jalen Johnson, but Johnson's still a pretty good corner. I think it could be a, a tougher outing passing the football for, for Aaron Rodgers. I think it's going to be a pressure-heavy game for a really, really good Bears front against the beat-up Packers offensive line. To me, this is an under, and this is going to be a tighter game than people realize.
3: It's ironic. Well, I don't want to say ironic, but it's interesting to note that Aaron Rodgers has played three average to slightly below average defenses metrically this year they've won all of those games against the Lions against the 49ers and against the Steelers they've played two defenses that rank in the top 10 this year and people are going to be surprised to hear that the Bengals are ranking top 10 right now but from an efficiency perspective they are and the Saints and that Packers offense barely walked away with a win against the Bengals and of course, lost in blowout fashion against the Saints. Not really uh, as a snowball type game, kind of like a one-off game that is not likely to happen Uh again. But that's interesting that the Bears also rank as one of the better defenses against these guys. Now, last week, the Bears defense held Derek Carr to minus seven CPOE. Only four completed air yards, 4.0 average air yards per completion. And that was without Akeem Hicks. Um On the season, the Bears defense ranks number four in efficiency, but hasn't faced very many strong passing attacks other than the Rams in week one. Um, What do you think, aside from just playing their standard Shonda side defense, are they going to try to do anything specific to try to limit Aaron Rodgers here?
0: I think that uh, if anything, and I'm not sure if Fangio has shown that he has this in his bag, so I'm not sure if it's something that decides into as well, but if you look at the way that, that the Packers move the ball downfield against the Bengals without Marcus Valdez scaling available, it was not only the Devontae Adams show, it was the downfield Devontae Adams show, which is not typically what we see. If we see a downfield Devontae Adams target, it's a three-step drop, we're throwing a nine-ball back shoulder, right? They're throwing him on the deep dig, throwing them on the post, stuff like that. Uh, you can run one double 11. And I think get away with it because you can play Eddie Jackson deep and he's a very influential deep safety. Put Jalen Johnson on Devontae Adams and then give him help with like Deion Bush or DeAndre Houston Carson. And then you live with Duke Shelley on Randall Cobb and you hope that you can win that matchup. You put Kendall Wilder on Al Mazar and you hope that you can win that matchup. I think that that's got some merit to it um, because... Rogers will, will throw it. He'll funnel targets to Adams, even if he's doubled, you know what I mean? And that's going to play into your hand. So if you want to run one double, you can, they, they run, I know they want, they run like one lurk and stuff where they'll, they'll put a rat in the hole, but Adams does so much good work outside of the numbers. I think you have to legit double him. You can't just have the rat looking for him on an intermediate routes. So I guess that the other thing that you see them do a lot, which is going to be fun against this Packers line is they run what we call uh some people call it a load front. Fangio would call it a boss front, uh, Boss is big on same side, right? That's that's where the letters come from. And what that means is we're going to take Akeem Hicks and Eddie Goldman and put them on the same side of the center. They're both going to be on the right side of the center. And Robert Quinn's going to be over there as well. So you've got three guys on one side of the center. And then on the other side, it's just Khalil Mack. When the the Rams did this, they did it with Aaron Aaron Donald as the isolated guy on the other side. What they're telling you is, okay, either slide to Khalil Mack. He's really freaking good. You need help over there. And we're going to have three over two which is a numbers, huge numbers advantage for us on the other side, or slide to the three-man side, and you're going to leave Khalil Mack one-on-one with who's playing left tackle, right? Who, who What's going to be the, the shuffled offensive line for Green Bay this week? So with a, an offensive line that's dealing with injuries, dealing with y- young players, you start putting funny fronts out there like that, you're going to get mistakes, and you're going to get quick pressure. So again, I think there's... I think I don't think the Bears win it, but I kind of think the Bears win it, but I definitely think it goes under, and I think that they're able to cause some pressure. It's a cause of pressure, cause some disruption.
3: I can't wait to watch it. Now, got to ask you quickly, the other side of the ball, obviously, Justin Fields. Quick question. Go ahead and expand. What stood out from his film last week in his first road start of his career in Las Vegas against the Raiders defense? Yeah,
0: I think the main thing that, that surprised me about Fields is over three games now, his one interception was a batted pass. He's been really... Uh, he, he protects the football better than I think we thought for a guy who had some processing concerns and whatever coming out of college. Usually you just see rookies throw picks and he's really not putting the ball in jeopardy. His receivers could have even helped him out more to avoid some, some pass breakups and make some catches. I know his numbers weren't very gaudy, but he looked good on, on the, on the, on the film. And and you're seeing him throw with better anticipation too. Uh, one of the common complaints in that, godforsaken browns game was like oh, it took nine sacks but oh if he had anticipated this curl route opening and thrown it right on time into this tiny window it would have been a completion so he should do that and it's like no that's really hard like that's not what we typically see rookies do that's not his play style well lo and behold like three weeks later and he's anticipating curl windows better than he was so there there was some credence to that idea but it's also impressive to see him improve uh he's his ability to Stick in this offense and be risk averse and, and to nickel and dime when he needs to is impressive. It's not typically his play style. And then you see him try to uncork and get the ball down the field. You like what you're seeing with his relationship with Darnell Mooney right now. I think they've they've got a good vibe going. So impressive overall. The fact that he's avoiding mistakes, especially after such a disruptive first game, is really really impressive. And this Packers defense doesn't generate a lot of chaos, not a lot of pressure, not a lot of of rotation and confusing stuff. So I think he can stay. Uh, risk avoiding in this game as well.
3: So you wonder if the Bears, who obviously took, uh, still took a somewhat run heavy approach last week, despite not having David Montgomery there, had some success on the ground. Uh, you would think that that could potentially carry forward. Um, the Bears had the high, one of the highest run rates in the NFL. They ran on 63% of their plays. Um, what are we going to get out of this? offense and what do you think specifically they should be doing to try to attack the Packers who of course have the number 29 ra- run defense so they struggle stopping the run uh, but they're also without Jair Alexander in the back end who's one of the best corners in the NFL so you should be able to have some success throwing the ball down the field a little bit too so what would you like to see the Bears offense do with Justin Fields and the ground game to take advantages? of Uh, advantage of specific weaknesses with this Packers defense?
0: Keep doing exactly what you're doing. Because one of the things that you'll hear coaches say, and and the idea has credence to me, is that when your offensive line is bad, run the football. Because it's going to let them come off the ball. It's going to let them be aggressive. It's going to let them come upfield. So you're dealing with injuries. You're putting young guys out there. All right. Let them come upfield. Let them hit a guy. Let They're, they're going to be able to play with aggression. They're going to be able to play with physical dominance. You're not going to ask them to be sitting in pass sets, passing off stunts, passing off games, identifying blitzes. We're going to run the ball. Uh, and that's going to simplify things for them and let them play fast. And you're seeing that right now in a Bears offensive line that, like, if you knew nothing about where the Bears offensive line is right now and you just watched the Raiders game, you'd be like, oh, that's a good group of starters. It's like three backups out there. You know, that's not, not what we wanted coming into the season. But they played really, really nicely coming off the football. And it's nothing uh, revolutionary. It's no oh, they're running this and that. Like, the, right now the Cowboys with their offensive line are running like 85 different concepts. The Bears are running four. But it's what you need. And it's going to get the job done. They're running inside zone, split zone, outside zone. You know what I mean? We're going to keep this simple. We're going to keep our rules simple. And we're going to come off the ball. Daryl Williams had a really nice game. And there's no reason against what the Packers have shown you offensively or excuse me, what the Packers have shown you defensively to change that formula that you got to do it until they take it away. And over five weeks, they haven't taken it away. Uh, so I, I would expect a heavy inside zone game because you can move those those defensive tackles off the ball. They're not staunch right now. Go right at those linebackers. because The linebackers are light. Go straight downfield on them. And then you're able to run split zone play action off it. So it's the formula we've talked about. But the Packers defense is not built to take it away right now. Keep hammering the button.
3: Now, a less sexy divisional matchup, but I got to talk to you about it because I do think it was underrated, the performance that Carson Wentz delivered there on Monday night in front of the nation. Now he goes up against this Houston Texans defense, and we talked about the fact that the Texans have never blitzed, not even once, on third down so far this season. They have the lowest blitz rate in the NFL. And the reason why that that matters is because it's diametrically opposite what all the other defenses that Carson Wentz and this Colts team have gone up against so far this season. If you look at the Ravens and the Dolphins and the Titans and the Rams and the Seahawks, these are all defenses that on average blitz at or above the NFL average and get pressure at or above the NFL average. Uh, there's 12 teams that are in this quadrant that blitz at or above NFL average and get pressure at or above NFL average. And Five of those teams are the teams that five of the 12 are the teams that the Colts offense has gone up against so far this season. On the opposite quadrant, totally opposite end of the spectrum, who doesn't blitz a lot and who never gets pressure is this Houston Texans team. So it's going to be a night and day difference for Carson Wentz. What do you think that means for him and their passing game? when they go up against uh, off of a really good confidence-boosting, confidence-building performance potentially against the Ravens, uh, how do you think that they're going to perform back at home in a must-win game against another 1-4 in team just like themselves, the Houston Texans' defense?
0: Yeah, by pro football references numbers, the two least pressuring defenses in the league are Indianapolis and Houston. I have no interest in watching this game. It just pisses me <laughs> off. They're also like... Both bottom six in in blitzery. I think that Texans, like you said, are right down there. And then the Colts are a little bit higher. But still, just not not a day for aggressive defense. Both of these coordinators, uh, Lovey Smith and Matt Eberflus on the defensive side, want to sit in deep zones and they want to make you throw underneath. The problem is neither one of them have very good personnel. And so you can still throw intermediate on him. Um, because right now their zones aren't overlapping the way you'd like to see. They're not playing with the continuity you'd like. Linebackers are weak. Darius Leonard, Bobby Okereke not having a great season right now, playing zone coverage, drop in middle of the field for the Colts. So for a quarterback like Carson Wentz, who's a veteran, who's shown the ability to, to win against sit defenses like this, should be fine. Uh, and the nice thing about the lack of blitzes is that, again, another offensive line that's dealing with some injury, that's a little bit beat up, Matt Pryor at right tackle. Well, you're not expected to be confused too much. Uh, at least the Colts like stunt and twist guys, the Texans don't even do that as much, right? So you're, you're able to line up and play, you know, who's going to come at you and you know, if all right, John Grenard's being up on that prior, we can give him chip help and it should be an easy solution. So I think, yeah, Colts passing game should have a a comfortable game. I like the way they're getting Jonathan Taylor involved in the passing game. I think that's an important part of JT's game that they're not really tapping in on yet. I know they gave the extension to Naeem Hines, but Taylor's got hands and he's really, really annoying to deal with in space because he's humongous and fast. Uh, And so I like the fact they're getting Taylor involved. Michael Pittman's waking up a little bit and, and starting to develop into the player they needed. I think this passing game is taking a couple weeks to get off the ground. But I I think that right, Ravens, great performance by the offense, but great performance by the passing game. I expect a repeat performance. Do not ask me what Davis Mills is going to do. Nobody in the world can predict what Davis Mills is going to do. He's the greatest mystery in the NFL right now. <laughs>
3: All right. I'll scratch those questions off the outline um, because I definitely was going to ask what we thought of him and, uh and, and if they need to get a little bit more look at him, I mean, Tyrod Taylor is not quite yet ready to come back from IR, but very soon Tyrod Taylor could be back from IR for this Texans team. And uh, it'll, we'll be curious to hear what the team decides to do if they just want to keep rolling with Davis Mills or they want to modify some things here. I was going to ask you what you thought from this game. It's totaled at 42 and a half with the, Colts opened up as 10-point favorites and some of the early money has come in on the Houston Texans here, thinking that the Texans are going to be able to generate something offensively to keep this game a little bit tighter. But I won't belabor that um, considering your lack of desire to want to <laughs> watch this game.
0: I definitely think nine and a half is too much, especially because I, I the Colts defense has stopped uh, Lamar for two and a half quarters. You know what I mean? Like that's their best performance so far this season. Uh, so I think nine and a half is too much. I think that it, I understand why the total is as low as it is. But I think that that both of these defenses are so want to have a just face plant games that I, I could see it going over pretty easily. So again, like when you're like the over, you're probably going to a nine and a half point spread. I like the Texans team total as well. But Davis Mills, I don't want to trust him right now because I remember the Patriots game and then I also remember who they play the week before the Patriots. Whoever he had like a one quarterback rating that's through four picks. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that was the Buffalo Bills. Bills,
0: thank you. That's who it was. I just don't Bills are a tough defense. Maybe, maybe we should scratch that one and just say they're the best defense in the league. But still, Houston is a very tough team to to fully trust for a four-quarter performance. Doesn't matter who they're playing.
3: Well, that's the interesting part about Davis Mills here is that he has played literally the most difficult schedule any rookie, I believe, has ever had to deal with the oh, first three games out the gates. They His first start is against the Carolina Panthers defense when they have Horn healthy, and, and that was his first start out the gates. The number five Carolina Panthers pass defense. His second start is on the road in Buffalo in like rain and mist. Um, and they're the number one pass defense in the NFL. His third start is against the number two pass defense in the NFL of Bill Belichick's New England Patriots who completely stifle rookie quarterbacks like it's their job. That's their, his first three starts in the NFL have all come against top five pass defenses. And now he gets to go up against the number 26th ranked pass defense of the Indianapolis Colts who as of are playing on a short week and left Baltimore with a complete mash unit in that secondary. So it will be, this is going to be, and and next week, mind you, Davis Mills goes up against the number three pass defense of the Arizona Cardinals. So if you ever have like a, a buy low spot, I know he threw for 300 yards and three tutties last week, but if there's ever a buy low scheduling spot where you could say, okay, this guy has played a brutal schedule of teams and next week he's going to play a brutal pass defense as well. But here is like this breath of fresh air where he can emerge from like the sunken ship, take a breath of fresh air before he gets dragged back down to the bottom of the ocean. This is the game against this Colts defense. So I'm really curious to see Uh, how he performs.
0: See, this is good. I just pass on Davis Mills and I make you be the one to be like, the Texans are good. Bet on Davis Mills. This is great. (laughs) I I was able to to sidestep that one.
3: Yeah, exactly. So a game that I think is going to be interesting and we'll touch on it briefly, the Steelers and Seahawks. You know, obviously now we've got Geno Smith commanding this offense. Um, It was one thing to look at Geno Smith going up against uh, Rams defense late in the game that was playing pre-event and really wasn't trying to test the Seahawks passing offense nearly as much, who also didn't game plan for Gino whatsoever. On the flip side, though, Gino didn't have the ability to get all the work with the ones and do all the, you know, he's a vet, of course, but he didn't get all the pre-game prep and game plan dialed up just for him. Now the Seahawks have that opportunity to dial up a week's worth of Plays and things that Geno could do for this offense, but the Steelers defense has the ability to prepare for a week to deal with Geno Smith and it's not going to just be playing prevent defense in the first quarter of the game because they're not going to be up at all. This game starts off zero to zero like every game does. What do you think Geno looks like in the first quarter of this game? Sunday night football, the whole world has to watch this thing. Uh, Pittsburgh right now is laying five, four and a half to five points in the total sits at around 42 and a half.
0: Yeah, I think that the, the Geno insertion into the Seahawks offense is probably a lot more interesting to people like me than it is for like average fans and average betters because the the Seahawks hire a new offensive coordinator, Shane Waldron, ex-passing game coach for the, the Los Angeles Rams. And all season long, it's like, how will they fit the Rams offense into the way that Russ plays? And like Tyler Lockett and all these quotes about like, oh, the, the differences and the audibles and the changes, it's so complex and whatever. And I just... The whole time, like, I was just like, I know what Russ is. I know what he likes to throw. I know what he doesn't like to throw. And he, a Tiger doesn't change his stripes, especially when he's, like, 31 and has won 10 games every single season. Like, he's he is what he is. And and we saw that first game against the Colts, and it was like, oh, maybe he's not. And then no, he went right back to being, <laughs> he is what he is, right? That first game against the Colts, like, there were a few, like, oh, quick check down. So the running back in the flat, like, oh, we're evolving. It just simply hasn't stuck. Uh, this offense has become the Russ offense, Shane Waldron version, but that's how it was with Schottenheimer and Bevel. It was, this is how Russ wants to play, and we're just going to kind of fold our ideas into that as best we can. So there's a discontinuity between what the quarterback wants to do and what the offensive coordinator wants to do, and there's a constant tug-of-war there, independent of the Pete Carroll, I want to run the ball 40 times a game, tug-of-war. So there's always been a lot of, like, uh, tension in a Seahawks offensive nucleus. Taking Russ out is legitimately interesting. Because what you saw from Gino was like a target to Will Disley in the middle of the field, which Russ just doesn't do. And that's part of this offense. And that's something that Shane Waldron would absolutely like to have as a consistent part of that. Like Gerald Everett is a $6 million tight end. Like they'd like for that to be a thing. But Russ just doesn't really target tight ends over the middle of the field. Gino is willing to. You saw Gino walk up to the line of autobling stuff. Like he's comfortable in this offense. So I think that there's a chance. I'm not sure it's a strong enough chance that I want to bet on it but there's a chance that Geno executes this offense really well. Uh, They don't get the ball as easily down the field, right? You're not going to get big Metcalf touchdowns, big Lockett touchdowns, but you're going to see a high-volume game for Will Disley or see a high-volume game for Lockett as an intermediate separator a high-volume game for Chris Carson out of the backfield. And they're going to be able to, in the way that this Waldron offense used to do with the Rams chunk the ball down the field with the running game to the boot action game and that's how kind of we expected this offense to be built before the whole rust factor got involved so i think there's a chance that seattle's offense just looks smooth looks controlled not as explosive not as dynamic but it's 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 there's no bumps in that road and gino's a vet who's got legit talent so i think that there's there's an actual shot for that again a big enough shot that i want to bet on it i mean maybe if i end up tilting into it after i have a bad sunday sure But right now, I don't think I'm going to take it. Well, let me
3: ask you this. Because the Steelers are going up against these guys, um, and and they they played the Broncos last week, and for two weeks now, we saw the Broncos. I I just got to ask you, make sure we get this in here. What is going on with the Broncos' defense? We know they played three cupcake offenses to start the season, and that helped their efficiency on that side of the football. But for two straight weeks now, they were blown out by teams that – you know, Lamar Jackson's Ravens and Ben Roethlisberger Steelers, uh, the downfield passing offense was like just popping in those games. Uh, what allowed the Steelers to gain a little bit of success in that game, but but also specifically like, what do you think? I know this is sidestepping the Sunday night game, which we'll get back to in a second. What's going on with this Broncos defense?
0: Uh, front's not great. You like Vaughn Miller. Vaughn looks awesome coming back. Obviously the absence of Bradley Chubb sucks and, and, and Bradley Chubb's health Problems is a really frustrating thing right now for Broncos fans because he's definitely a talented player, but it's hard to keep him out on the field. So you're playing Malik Reed again. I like Reed as a player. I think he's an impressive guy, but he's definitely a little light in the pants. uh, So he's not going to be as strong against the run. And then you extended Shelby Harris, which I thought was a good decision. Uh, Mike Purcell's your nose. Draymond Jones, big year three. Let a couple guys walk. Let Draymond Jones be a starter. And right now they're getting moved up front. Uh, You're not generating the rush you'd like to see outside of Vaughn. And you're certainly not have the the staunchness that you'd like to see in terms of the uh, uh, the the run defense up front. And they're starting to screw around with some stuff, right? Like they they were doing weird front stuff against the Ravens that you hadn't really seen them do all year. And you're like, okay, well that's because it's the Ravens against the Steelers. They played a lot of like. Uh, what, we, what we would call like three-three-five, right? Where it's three down defensive linemen and then three linebackers on the field. And that's trying to just change the look, try to get different guys in different gaps. Uh, so that means like Micah Kaiser played, like I want to say 15, 20 snaps, which he hadn't really played all year. Uh, so they're trying to change what it looks like up front. Cool. That experimentation indicates that they don't really have anything that they feel like they're comfortable in right now, right? Right now, like on pressure downs, they look great. But on base downs, I think they're still trying to figure out who's our best personnel with Bradley Chubb out, with Josie Jewell out, and how are we going to get these guys on the field to stop the run? So fundamentally, like the secondary looks awesome, and I think it'll be fine. Uh, obviously, gave up on a couple of explosives. Chase Claypool's really stinking good. But in general, it's that box. It's that front five, front six. that I think they're still figuring out who they want where on which downs to stop the run while still staying light in the box.
3: So in this specific game, you've got the Steelers that, you know, their offense has shrugged a lot of ups and downs this year, mostly down rather than up. Uh, but this team has gone up against the number three most difficult schedule of opposing defenses on the season. You got a game against the Bills, a game against the Bengals, a game against the Raiders, a game against the Broncos mixed in there. I mean, shockingly enough, in years past, you wouldn't necessarily have said that at least like three, four or five years ago. But now you're going up against the easiest defense that you've played all season, the Seattle Seahawks, who ranked number 27 against the pass. Do you see the Steelers building off of anything that and the confidence that they perhaps gained last week in their victory against the tough Broncos defense. Anything that's going to work in this game that they can carry forward? How do you see them attacking the Seahawks defense?
0: Yeah, the most important thing to me is uh, a little bit of addition by subtraction. Juju Smith-Schuster, good slot receiver, right? We like the way Juju plays physically. He's tough, tough catches over the middle, nice. He plays in the slot for them. Deontay Johnson plays outside, plays the Z. Uh, so he's going to be your field stretcher. He's going to be offline of scrimmage. And then Chase Claypool plays outside, plays your axe, He's going to handle press coverage. He's going to bully corners down the field. Cool. That's how you kind of got it built. Juju goes down in this game, and they start doing a lot of what they did last year when they were just integrating Claypool into the offense as a rookie. They started moving him around. They said, hey, we're going to take our 6'4", 225-pound fast boy and put him everywhere. And make you match him, make you deal with this size at, with this speed at different alignments. And so you saw the very famous, like they had Von Miller in coverage over Chase Claypool. Yeah, when you put Chase Claypool's number three to empty, you're going to get him into some really weird looks. You're going to put the defense into some tough spots. He's a hard guy to cover when you move him inside. So Juju out for this game means more Claypool on the inside means more moving around your receivers. They had no James Washington. So it was Ray Ray McLeod and Cody white who were ended up being their wide receiver three and four. They're able to get James Washington back. That's nice. because He's a good field stretcher, but even then like Ray 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 McLeod's got a lot of speed. Like he's an annoying guy to deal with. If you put him in motion, you fake a jet on him. You give him a little screen touch. Like he's their returner. So he can do stuff with the ball in his hands. Uh, without Juju, they start to get a little more creative with where they put their wide receivers and how they get into their routes and anything that can kind of break the calcified Steelers offense and kind of like massage this stagnation is good. So losing Juju definitely hurts, but it's also forcing them to be more creative and more creative means harder to match up. And that's nice for a team that can't do a lot of creative things because of the limitations put on them by their quarterback.
3: So real quick side total, Steelers are favored by five. Total sits at 42 and a half. Any particular value
0: in either of those for you? I think I probably would sit on it and then probably end up taking the Seahawks. Just because, for me, uh, Steelers are a tough team to trust on offense. Impressive game against the Broncos. Did not think we were going to get that, so I respect it. But uh, I do think, like I said, that there's that chance that the Seahawks offense just doesn't experience that big of a drop-off. And if I could tell you, you know, you're going to get this Seahawks team with the way they're able to, to move the ball and with the advantage they have with the wide receivers and that they got a good running game at plus five against the Steelers, usually you'd like that. So the Russ absence, again, it definitely sucks. It's definitely worrisome. But if this continues to expand, right, this, this continues to be a more and more one side, and I can get the Seahawks at like plus six before the game closes on Sunday night, I'll probably look at that.
3: Got it. Okay. Rapid fire, wild card round. We don't know what's gonna come out your mouth here, but Kyle Shanahan. Yeah, I
0: don't either. Kyle
3: Shanahan's usage of Trey Lance go.
0: Generally good. There's a couple of things that are frustrating. Uh the fourth down play calling, obviously, they go one for five. They had every chance to win this game and they just could not pick up a fourth down. Um, but they got a little bit too big brain at times, right? That first first fourth and two. They're running quarterback power from empty. Nobody in the world thought you were going to throw it on fourth and two. I don't know why you're going empty. You're not lying to anybody. You know, they do the Kyle Juszczyk quarterback sneak, which is like a good play, but also on fourth and like half a yard, not on fourth and a yard and a half. Apparently, they also had like an option pitch tagged on it, right? Like if you watch the all 22, it looks like Juszczyk might pitch it out to Lance. Uh, they're blocking for it. Lance is moving for it. You just doesn't do it. So I don't know if we got the play call in wrong or if they legitimately wanted you to like read it out, which is a tough ask for a fullback. So just some stuff that like, all right, like let's, let's kind of chill out a little bit. And then the other thing is uh, they don't fully trust Lance to read things out yet. It's still to the game's fast for him. It is. And so there'll be plays that look like they're read options, right? Like we talk about, oh, he can either keep it or give it based off what the edge does but it's actually, it's a dummy. It's, he's just going to give it every single time. He wants to posture towards the defense as if he might keep it, but it's always a give. The Cardinals sniffed that out, right? And they, they weren't as worried about the Lance keep as they should have been. And I think Shanahan should have done more to say to his quarterback, you can keep it if you want. You should have given him more legit uh, read opportunities. And so all the passing game stuff aside, which, you know, Lance is going to, it's going to be a growth process. He made some dumb mistakes. That running game could have and should have been better. Uh, that was a huge missed opportunity for the Niners altogether.
3: Any non-obvious mismatch that you see that we didn't discuss yet that better should be aware of heading into this week six?
0: Uh, The biggest one that sticks out to me is what you're going to end up getting actually on Thursday Night Football, which I know we're going to talk about in a second, but as just a little preview. uh, This Eagles defense just simply doesn't blitz. Uh, They don't lie to you up front and they drop into zone coverage. I don't know if you've ever seen Tom Brady play against a zone heavy team. It is mincemeat. Uh, to me, this is a a the the Eagles passing defense kind of had a nice game there against the Panthers. We might fool ourselves into thinking that that means they're on the up and up. I do not see that being the case. Uh, the me the, the the biggest mismatch that I see coming into this week is Bucks passing offense against this Eagles pass defense. I don't think it goes well at all.
3: All right, so let's transition into a couple lines this week where we had a team that won last week and is favored this week that you think has a bad matchup that you might want to back the dog here in this spot. We're always looking for what the public's not looking at. So the Bucs minus seven, I know that's not going to be one of them. You got the Packers minus four and a half. You already indicated you kind of like the Bears there. Rams minus 10 and a half. Vikings have now become the favorite in Carolina. The Vikings were catching one. Now they're laying one. Cowboys minus four versus New England Patriots. Ravens minus three versus the Chargers. That might be one uh, as well. Steelers minus four and a half versus the Seahawks. Bills minus five and a half versus the Titans.
0: Yeah, we've talked about it. I like the Bears against the Packers. I like the Chargers against the Ravens. Seahawks, I think I want the line to be a little bit bigger, but I I think that they've got a chance against Pittsburgh. The only other one that to me stands out is right Vikings-Panthers, which like you said, crossed the line. Uh, and So it's just a matter of kind of who you prefer here. Uh, The Panthers passing game has been what's failed them over the last couple of weeks the lack of Christian McCaffrey has made it tough for Sam Darnold Uh, he's losing his safety valve they're not getting McCaffrey back this week and so I understand the continued reticence but with that said I think this Panthers defense is for real we got to remember like they were going to beat the Eagles and not for a block punt uh yes the Panthers defense lost to the Cowboys yes they got diced up by Dak to me that tells me a lot more about Dak and the Cowboys offense being really 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 good then the Panthers defense, I think the Panthers defense can still hang. The major concern is that they're not going to have anything against the run. I think the Vikings might be able to run this ball all over them. But if they're able to deal with the, those fronts, able to deal with that wide zone, get those surfaces larger, get some heavier bodies on the field, then they should be OK. Uh, so to me, this one is a pick'em, Right. And so if you're going to give me Vikings minus one and a half minus two, then I probably lean the Panthers. But it is a tricky game to trust.
3: Yep, absolutely. I think that's why the books are are so easily swayed back and forth there. Um, mm-hmm. When you look at the opposite scenario, a team that lost last week and is now an underdog this week that you think might have value off of their loss, you got the Raiders catching points against the Broncos, the Texans plus nine and a half against the Colts game we discussed earlier, the Giants against the Rams. That was an option earlier for you as well. Didn't say anything about that one, so maybe no. Jaguars plus three and a half against the dolphins who are probably going back to Tua. He's practicing again today. Uh, that was just announced the Detroit lions plus three and a half against the Bengals. We already talked Panthers Vikings. We already talked Seahawks Steelers, Washington plus seven against the chiefs.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Not much that I like here. Obviously, my weekly support of the Detroit Lions, who are oh so close to winning a game against the Minnesota Vikings, remains. Uh, I don't think they actually cover three and a half against the Bengals, but I still think they're going to win a game at some point, and I'm enjoying rooting for them. They're a lot of fun. Uh, I would have said a couple of days ago that Raiders plus four against the Broncos is the one that you want here, but with what's going on with Las Vegas right now, you don't really know where that team's going to be at headspace wise what their focus is going to be and so it's a game that largely i don't want to touch and then without knowing where daniel jones is at as of right now he's just watching practice uh i don't want to take that giants line either i think that the rams are going to throw the ball all over them well i think the giants could keep up if they were healthy no jones no saquon makes it really really tough so to me on this slate nothing that i i i jump at
3: okay let's transition Quickly to Thursday night football. We've got the Eagles hosting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers short week. Tom Brady does have the thumb on his throwing hand that he says is probably going to be okay, but he's resting it. He's still getting a lot of treatment done on it. Um, to be determined whether or not that impacts him obviously he played the rest of the game with it but those types of things tend to have the trauma linger on for a couple of days at least um so short week definitely hurts him from that respect you've already mentioned the massive mismatch that brady may have here in the passing game and they do like to pass the football they're a high pass rate team sometimes they run a little bit too much on first down eagles run defense might be able to help uh squash some of the that efficiency game that they try to attempt on those runs, but they probably will have some success through the air. So I want to start with the other side of the ball, the side of the ball that we have more question marks about their performance, and that is this Eagles offense being able to have success against this Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense, specifically as it relates to the secondary, because that's the focus. Teams do not pass, teams do not run the football against this Bucks defense. The Eagles were one of the most pass heavy teams in the NFL to begin with. Now you're going up against a run defense that is shockingly, well not shockingly, but just like destroys your run game in general and thus even teams that wanna run the football go much more pass heavy against them. It's not going to take too much arm twisting to get the Eagles to throw the football a lot in this game. So where do you see the Eagles offense trying to go to exploit edges in this Buck secondary, which does have some injury issues?
0: Yeah, so the total is at 52 and a half, I want to say. And I think it's gone yep. up. I'm pretty sure it opened around 51, if memory serves. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, but anyway, so you expect high scoring on both sides. Uh, the other thing is I think Jalen Hurts passing attempt total opened at like 38 which is obnoxiously high, but with the amount the Eagles pass the football, like you said, and with what Tampa Bay does to you on on defense in terms of taking away your running game, yeah, you expect this to be a very pass-heavy game. So I think it's over. I think it's fast-paced. I think that the, the Bucs are able to win it because I think the Eagles get absolutely no stops, but I think the Eagles can put up points. It's not dissimilar to the game we saw the Eagles play against the Chiefs two weeks ago, right, where it's okay nobody's punting, which literally nobody punted in that game. It was the fifth game in NFL history where there wasn't a single punt. I expected at least a couple punts, Uh, but I think it's going to be high scoring on both sides, but the Bucs will never really be in danger. If you're looking specifically at matchups, Big Kenneth Gainwell game. Uh, you've seen that the pass catching back facing the Bucks has been focused, has been a, a high volume important player. Look at Tony Pollard in week one. Look at Miles Gaskin last week. That's Kenneth Gainwell for the Eagles. So big Kenny Gainwell week. Uh, Quez Watkins outsnapped Jalen Rager for the first time this year. They've been trending that way. Uh, Quez is probably the Eagles wide receiver too moving forward. So if you can get his receiving totals or receiving yard totals on a book, that's also a good over bet, especially because this Bucks defense despite the fact the Eagles offense is pretty simple, pretty collegiate, they'll still blitz. I mean, they'll still do some wild stuff, which means they'll throw a bubble screen to Quez Watkins and it'll go for negative three yards. They'll throw a bubble screen to Devontae Smith. It'll go for two yards. And then they'll throw one that'll go for 75 because once something busts, there's no safety. There's no safety valve in terms of how Tampa Bay plays defense. They are at your throat. Uh, and so the explosive play potential is pretty high for the Eagles. I think that's where they get their points. So I like the over overall. I like the Bucks still to cover. I think it's an extremely high scoring game.
3: There we go. Well, that should make for a lot of intrigue. Uh, Looking forward to watching that game. We've got three interesting games in primetime this week. We've got that game that hopefully is high-scoring and entertaining. We've got the Geno Smith experience and the Ben Roethlisberger, I think, first exposure to primetime yet this season on Sunday night. And then, of course, Monday night football, we've got Brian Dayball, Josh Allen, the Buffalo Bills taking on the Tennessee Titans. Should be an interesting rematch game from last season. I think that'll do it, Ben. This has been a great Uh, step into the week six slate looking at some of the matchups that we're going to get digesting your thoughts a lot of fun always love this show thank you very much ben we will be back on friday with joe house to look at the biggest games for this weekend get some of joe's picks thank you also to mike wargon and craig holbeck for producing the show everybody good luck with your bets until then we will see you on friday